session, so deserve a break. Once in a while, it's good to take a break. And so you get to be in with the, the big people. And maybe you can uh, answer some questions for a quiz to follow. Revelation chapter 1, everybody. Revelation chapter 1. I will repeat what I said at the very first lesson. There are over 1,000 volumes written about Winston Churchill. And there's great interest about him. And there's a lot of books written about the book of Revelation. Great interest in that. Always has been, seems like. And so I felt like we need to go through some of the verses, if not verse by verse, and see what new things God can teach us. Or, more accurately, some things he can review with us so we can remember what he's already said. We're in chapter 1, verse number 5. This is our fourth lesson. And so in verse number 5, it says this. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There are three major statements in verse number five. The first one is when it says, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Now, in a court of law, a witness is to testify what they know, what they have seen, what they have heard, their experience with an incident, and a witness has to be credible, a witness has to be honest. If the witness has perjured himself or herself, that means they've said something that's not true. They have deliberately said something to mislead the jury. And so it's a serious crime. But the credibility of a witness is very important for both sides of the, the court system. And making a false statement under oath, not telling the truth. Well, that's man. Man has a tendency to be dishonest. Now, not everyone is dishonest, but Generally, the nature of a man is to be dishonest for self-gratification or for benefit to himself or to have to have safety. Whatever motivation it is for a man to lie or to spin the truth or bend the truth, that happens a lot. And so there is a statement in the Bible, Romans chapter 3. Who can find your first? Raise your hand, please. Romans chapter 3, verse number 4, Anna. It says, well, that was fast. I <laughs> just give the reference here. Raise your hand. Joseph. Rome, I'm sorry, Romans 3 4. Romans 3 4. Thou hast a few names even in service. Romans. Romans. Sorry, I didn't say it well. Romans. Romans, Revelation. Same thing starts with an R. Romans 3 4. Now who has it? Joseph, again. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Uh, okay, good. Thank you. That's good. Let God be true. Let God be true, every man a liar. The statement has a lot of things that it's saying, but it really is saying this, God is always true. God is a faithful witness. Now, somebody find John 14, 6 quickly. John 14, 6, raise your hand. John 14, 6. Timothy. Uh, so, so Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth. That kind of supports what Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, he always tells the truth. Now, no one is totally worthy of complete trust in our world. No one is totally worthy of complete trust. Now, there are exceptions, but the exception proves the rule. If you can find someone that you can trust, I mean, totally, that's a blessing. 
if you have a person in your life that you can go to, it could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be really anyone that you have confidence that you can trust him or her. That is a real big plus in your life. Not many people have that kind of a friend. And Jesus Christ is that one who is always truthful because his nature is truth and he is the faithful witness and he would never, never, ever lie. He makes promises, he keeps them. He never betrays his word. He's always faithful to what he has said. If he commits something to Israel in a covenant, he will keep it. If he commits a promise in the New Testament to the church, he will keep it as well. Now, we make promises, we make commitments, and of course, the way it sometimes goes is that it is unfulfilled because people do not always tell the truth. Now, being honest is a real blessing. It's a good character trait. If a person's honest, honest mechanic, honest salesman, honest church member, honest Christian, honest neighbor, honest whatever, that is a blessing. But the Bible does say in principle that only Jesus Christ is the one you can trust totally with your very soul and with your life now. And so he's a faithful witness. Titus 1-2 says this, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie. God cannot lie. There are three things God cannot do. One of them is that he cannot lie. Cannot lie. He cannot lie. What, what part of society is very common for people to lie? What part of society you have a segment of people, it's almost a given that they're going to lie? Politicians. 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 It is a given. To get into office, they will lie. They will tell one group this so that they please this group of people. And they do all the time and they have no consciousness that this is lying because they say this is just politics. Well, Jesus Christ is not a politician, thank God for that. He is called a faithful witness. And so he always tells the truth. So here's the lesson to draw from that. The application is because that is true about Jesus Christ, you can trust him not only for salvation, you can trust him for your life now. So find the promises of God Believe it, and by faith, stand on it, and live a life of faith, not in faith, but a faith in God who cannot lie. Mm -hmm. That is comforting to know that, that God cannot lie. All right, now, it says also in verse 5, and, and, he's the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead. The first begotten of the dead. Begotten, begotten means brought forth, uh, pertaining to only one of its kind within a specific relationship. Brought forth, the first begotten of the dead. He's the first one brought forth from the dead. Now, there is something to remember about that verse, and there's something to think about about that verse. It says, and the first begotten of the dead. He is the first, it says, to be begotten, to have been brought forth from the dead. But were, the question is this, were there others that were brought forth from the dead besides Jesus Christ, specifically before Jesus Christ? Were there others who were brought forth from the dead? And if there were, how come it says he is the first begotten of the dead? So can you see there's a little thinking involved here? He's called the first begotten of the dead and if we can find verses in the Bible before Jesus Christ rose from the dead, how come he's called the first begotten of the dead? 
I will, I will tell you this. There are some in the Bible that were raised from the dead before Jesus Christ. Let me give you a list of some. You maybe know them. I will give you a list of nine people. Some were raised after Jesus Christ, but I will give you the reference. You want to write them down, and you will see that these were before Jesus Christ rose from the dead. First of all, there is this person who was brought from the dead. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we will not go to every reference. I'll give it to you. 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. All right, this is about the widow of Zarephath, uh, her son. Her son died, and Elijah the prophet raised the son of this widow from the dead. 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. That's the first one. Read that sometime. It's very, very interesting. The second reference about another person raised from the dead before Jesus Christ is involving another prophet who came after Elijah. Who would that be? There's two E's here, back to back. Elijah and Elisha, okay? So Elisha now, uh, the prophet Elisha raised the son of a Shunammite woman, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18 through 37. A little long scripture there, but that's about what he did. So now you have two prophets raising two sons of two different women from the dead. So there, Jesus was not the first to be raised from the dead, but we have to keep thinking. Number three, the third reference is really Really strange. I want you to see this reference. Second Kings chapter 13. This is really odd. This is this one is like, what? Am I really reading what the Bible says? Mm, this one is really odd. Second Kings chapter 13. This one is worth looking at. Second Kings 13. This is the most unusual resurrection. <laughs> 2 Kings 13 and verse number 20. 13 verse 20. Let's look at the verses. Alright. 2 Kings 13 verse 20. Let's look at the verse. And Elisha died. And they buried him. Okay, that's in my mind. I see him. He has died. He's buried. And the bands of the Moabites. This is not a musical group, ladies and gentlemen. The bands of the Moabites. By the way, if this was a musical group, what kind of music would they be playing? The bands of the Moabites. The music of the Moabites. Well, it was not. The bands of the Moabites invaded the land in at the coming of the year. Verse 21. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. Picture what's going on here. This is so weird. And when the man was let down, the corpse was let down, it touched the bones of Elisha and revived and stood up on his feet. <laughs> Isn't this kind of too fantastic to, to see and to understand? If you read what you're reading, and I read what I'm reading, I read what you're reading, this is a fantastic incident. They're digging a hole to bury this guy. The Moabites come to hide. They throw this corpse into the into the um, where, where Elisha was, and, they, 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 and the, the, the corpse touches the boat, and the man stands up. How did those guys think and feel when they saw that dead man 
get up again. <laughs> this is a really fantastic movie if they can produce it this way. Oh, this is this is eerie. Well, there's a lot of stories like this. It's there. And so that was the resurrection. A dead person came to life. Although God was not involved in that in a way, this was kind of really, the, the more you think about it, it's really strange because it touched the bones of a dead prophet and this body came to life. Now, you can't make a doctrine out of this. You can't make a doctrine out of this. Sometimes people have relics. They have things that are sacred to them. Here's a bone. Here is the... Uh, index finger of John the Baptist and if you find the finger of John the Baptist you touch it then because it happened in 2 Kings with Elisha the body of Elisha you'll be raised to life again so take this find the finger of the body of the body of John the Baptist and or uh, of another of Elisha or another prophet and take it to the hospital and lay it at the at, at the the bed of a, a sick relative and he'll be raised to dead because it happened over here now that's crazy just because it happened doesn't mean you can re replicate it. But people do think that way. Warning, be cautious about things like that. Now come over to um, another incident, Luke chapter 7. Well, don't come over here, but this is another reference. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. This is the son of a widow. Son of a widow, Jesus raised from the dead. Let me give you another one in the New Testament. These are references before Jesus himself was resurrected. Someone else was resurrected. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Jairus's 12 year old daughter was raised from the dead. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty supernatural. If you can just imagine going back there when it happened and you were part just going through the town and you saw this happen, you would say, This is a miracle because it was a miracle. Now, notice that it was not a stadium. A concert hall, a big production, a promotion of a healing service. This is just the Lord with His power being able to do these things. No fanfare. As a matter of fact, the way that the Lord did healings in the New Testament, He went where people were, they didn't come to Him exactly. Sometimes they came to Him, sometimes He went to them, and in the process of going here, people said, Oh, please help. And He did. Now, if the Lord was in Hawaii today, and if he was walking around today, he's not. But if he was in the first century, if Jesus was in Hawaii in the first century and there was Straub, Kokini, uh, Tripler, uh, Kapilani, and all the hospitals, Leahi, all these hospitals here, you know what he would do? If he was doing the same thing today as he did back in the first century, first century he would go to where people are that are really sick. And he would go without any publicity. He would not call Joe Moore and say, Joe Moore, I'm going to go to Queens and heal all those little boys and girls who have uh, problems and I'll go to Straub and heal people of all the cancers and everything and I'll go to all the, Kaiser I'll go to I, I, I want to I would just go and he would not have to do that there'd be no publicity no promotion no announcements he would just go and do it and there would be real healings like he did over here that tells me something about modern healers and I have to always say something about this because uh, these so-called modern healers are such hypocrites I mean really they're such they're such hypocrites the stronger word is this. They're such phonies. They're such phonies. The very ones who say, just have faith that God will heal you. And they do the healings of the, taking up the glasses and seeing and all that. And then the hearing, all these different ways. And the, the leg that grows, all these things. Medically speaking, 
to prove to a skeptic that these are real genuine healings show me the doctor's report of after that big crusade and let me see if these people who actually came on the stage and got healed threw down the crutches and got on the wheelchairs and said they're not going to hear let's see the doctor's report that would prove to an unbelieving world that it really happened wouldn't you think so but they never can produce that and when it comes to raising the dead many modern healers who say that they could do the supernatural you can't find the people that they say they're raising the dead that's very suspicious to me so these are real miracles here's another one uh, this is very well known John chapter 11 John chapter 11 come to John chapter 11 we're talking about Revelation 1 5 from Jesus Christ the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead that phrase the first begotten of the dead is taking us on the trail of other Bible verses to make a point that others were raised in the dead before he was raised in the dead but there's one major difference there's two major differences there's three major differences when it comes to Jesus Christ himself raised from the dead and others who raised from the dead before him and even from those that he raised from the dead there's one two three major differences you need to know this where did I say to go John oh John chapter John chapter 11 mm -hmm. this is one of the most famous verses in the New Testament about the power of Jesus Christ to raise the dead and it tells a lot of truth about man and about God John chapter 11 a friend of Jesus Lazarus Mary and Martha and Jesus friend Lazarus becomes ill they call for Jesus he doesn't come yet and by the time he shows up he's been dead four days and so there's some criticism because he didn't come on time oh there's a lesson here isn't there there's a lesson here isn't there Mary Martha did ask the Lord to come to send a message go get him come right away his friend Lazarus is very sick and he doesn't come it takes him four days to come he could have gotten there very much sooner but he didn't show up and so there's grumbling going on because he didn't come in time and now Lazarus has died do you know that people feel the same way today when they pray for something God doesn't give it to them and they get very upset because the Lord didn't come through for them as they had hoped and they get very very discouraged they even get mad and they become critical and as he came to the town and you know Martha said Lord if you'd been here on time if you'd come sooner my brother Lazarus would not have died she's very upset you can't blame her you can't blame her well in John chapter 11 we know that the Lord did a great miracle and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. This is the third person that is recorded of him raising someone from the dead. The third one, Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, in verse number 39, he is buried in a sepulcher in a cave-like burial situation, not in the, in the ground. And verse number 39, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. For he hath been dead four days. Verse number 40. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which, standeth, which stand by, I said it, that they may believe, 
that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice. Cried with a loud voice means he raised his voice. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now watch what happens in verse number 44. This is as fantastic as the corpse that touched Elisha's bones that stood up. Verse 44. And he that was dead, notice, 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 he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. And so that was a real miracle. Now, Jesus raised him up, which is a key thought about one of the three things that is very different from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and others that he raised from the dead. But I must give you another one. I must give you another one. This is in Matthew 27. I'd like to look at this reference. Matthew 27. Jesus is called the first the first begotten of the dead. But we're looking at people whom he raised from the dead and others who are raised up by others before he was resurrected. Now this one is also very, very spectacular. Matthew 27 and verse number 50. Matthew 27, verse number 50. You realize that many things happen at the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on earth. Many things happen. Verse number 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Now, by the way, why did the temple veil, why was it torn from the top to the bottom? Not bottom to the top. It's very symbolic and it's very significant why the temple veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Where the high priest met once a year behind this curtain at the Ark of the uh, Ark of the Covenant at the mercy seat where blood is applied once a year on behalf of the nation of Israel. Why was that veil, that, that temple veil, why was that curtain torn from the top and not from the bottom? What was the symbolism? What is the significance of that tearing from the top to the bottom? It's very significant, it's very symbolic. It's to show that God approved of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of mankind. And he, God tore the temple veil from the top to the bottom and he ripped it like that and ripped it apart. He exposed, he exposed figuratively to the whole world the place where God would accept the blood sacrifice of the high priest once a year before only he could come in. Now it was a new and a living way coming in to see. Anyone can come to Christ now because of God tearing the veil away. So that's the significance of that. Uh, verse number 51 again. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Verse 52. And, oh boy, look at this. And the graves were opened. Because of the earthquake, it shook everything apart. You can say this is like rock and roll. Is that a joke? And the graves, and the graves were opened. The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Now, dead saints, however long they were dead in the grave, doesn't say it could be dead saints from the Old Testament times. It could be dead saints from hundreds of years. We, we don't know. But it's the bodies of the saints which slept, those who have died. They're in the ground. They're in a sepulcher. They're buried in the ground or in a sepulcher. 
and the bodies of the saints which slept arose. This is a very fantastic event at the crucifixion of Christ. Now watch what happens. Verse 53. And came out of the graves, not right away, after his resurrection. That means the graves were open, the bodies of the saints that slept arose, arose, and then came out of the graves after his resurrection. So for three days after the graves were open and it sat up, it was not to the resurrection of Christ. After three days, then they got up and walked around Jerusalem. Like a chicken skin. When you think about what happened, if you can imagine that. Now, there's a real weird thing in, the, in our culture about zombies. Uh, there's movies about zombies all over the place. It's just the most... Uh, but these are people that were dead. Their bodies have gotten up and they walk around Jerusalem. Now, how did they walk? I don't know, but I... I just got walked around. Probably they said, I'm hungry. <laughs> I don't know what they said, but they walked around Jerusalem and they were probably recognized if they were recently dead saints. But if they were from hundreds of years ago, I don't know what they look like. What uh, it's just it's just one of those things that the Bible records. Now that's a real fantastic resurrection. Now, and then another one, number eight. And I'm really getting down now to the emphasis of why all of these are given to us tonight to compare and to contrast with Jesus Christ. Um, in Acts chapter 9, look at Acts chapter 9, verse number 40. This is after Jesus had gone back to heaven and the apostle Peter did something here. Acts chapter 9 and verse number 40. Just two verses in this reference. 9, verse number 40. Begin at verse number 39. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made. This is also Tabitha. Verse 40. But Peter put them forth. He dismissed them and kneeled down and prayed, turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. So Jesus spoke to a corpse. Tabitha, arise. And she, and she, you have to imagine this as you read these words. And she opened her eyes. So she's there. Tabitha, Tabitha, arise. <laughs> now, if my wife did this, she's got big eyes, you know, in her. You know, my wife, she, she's mean to me sometimes because if she wants to get back at me, she'll come up to me and she'll do this. <laughs> she makes these big eyes. And it, it makes me scared when she does that. But uh, Tabitha Rise, <laughs> can you imagine the scene? Verse 41, and she, and, uh, and she sat up. <laughs> she sat up. 
verse 41, and he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, presented her alive. All right, girls, you can come back in. Here's Tabitha. Tabitha, say hello. <laughs> All right, so that's another miracle, a resurrection from the dead. Now, uh, one more, and I'll just give reference. A young man, a young man came to hear Paul preach. Paul's about to leave the next morning, so he's very long-winded. He's got a night service. And a young man of Troas named Eutychus, he goes to the third loft, third floor, we'll say third floor. He's sitting on a window ledge, listening to Peter, uh, uh, Paul speak in the evening. Paul has a lot to say. He's leaving the next morning. He's got a lot to say. He goes toward midnight. He goes toward midnight. The man gets sleepy and he falls off the ledge and he dies. And Paul, Paul lifts him up, raises him from the dead. Now that can never happen today. First of all, in our church. If someone died today, that would never happen the very same way. He could not sit on the ledge of the window. We're in the second floor, not the third floor. It cannot happen today. Um, what can't happen today is people do sleep in church. <laughs> that can happen today. And if he did fall out, if someone fell off the chair and conked his head on his hard floor and died, we could not raise him. Did we call 911? <laughs> That's what we would do. So the historical account is real, but we're not supposed to duplicate what is just history. Just because it's there, doesn't we can copy it and replicate it. Remember that. So we go back to verse number five of Revelation 1. And the first begotten of the, come back over there with me. And the first begotten of the, all of that journey was to emphasize the contrast between these who were dead and were raised again in comparison to the first begotten of the dead. Now, what is the difference? What are the differences between these that were resurrected and Jesus Christ's resurrection? What are the differences? There are some major differences here. Well, first of all, all of them are raised by someone else's power. You know, it was not a self-resurrection. It was not a self-resurrection. It was not a selfie. It was not someone just having positive. No, no. Someone else had to do that. Another major difference uh, is this. And this is a major difference. All that a second time. All those who were resurrected, they had died. Death number one. They were brought to life again. They lived and then they died a natural death or however where, however they died, they died again. They died twice. That's the major difference from Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see Revelation in chapter 1, verse number 18. 118. Come down to verse number 18. This is a huge contrast to those resurrected by others and by Jesus Christ. And in comparison to Jesus himself, here's a major difference. 
Revelation 1.18. All right, look at what it says there. Now, if you have the King James Bible, that is what you will need to see the exact, the powerful truth of verse number 18. I am he, I am he, Jesus speaks, I am he that liveth and was dead. He did die. He was crucified and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, forevermore. So that means he would never die again. So all of these that were raised from dead, they all died a second time. Jesus died once. Never to die again. That's one of the major differences between people born of Adam and the Son of God who came down from heaven. He would never die again. See that verse number 18 again? I am alive forevermore. That is very, very important and very much the huge contrast between the other miraculous resurrections and Jesus Christ's resurrection. And also, I think another thing uh, I want to emphasize here, someone else raised them from the dead and Jesus Christ raised himself. He raised himself. In other words, he within himself had the power to raise his own self up. Other verses talk about the Father raised him. It's because it's the Godhead Trinity uh, factor, all working in coordination. And so he raised himself up. Now, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, notice this. Uh, I want to give you another verse here. This one is, uh, I didn't write it down. Um, Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, after he was eating with his sisters. He never did say this. You never find it in John 11. I raised myself from dead. I am he that liveth evermore. He never said that. Anyone else who was raised from the dead, they never claimed to be the one who raised himself from the dead. And whoever else raised Elijah, Elijah, they never claimed anything like that. Peter did, Paul did. Only Jesus Christ can say verse number 18. What does that tell you? Well, he's the faithful witness and he is the only begotten of the dead. That's what that is about. Not the first one, but the only one that raised himself by his own righteousness, by his own power. That's pretty unique and special. And so I have the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. That verse means when people have died physically, their bodies in the ground, their souls have gone to heaven. But because they believed on Christ while they were alive, though they were dead, bodies, they will live. They'll be resurrected. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Now, back to 1-5, Revelation 1-5. He's also called this. Let me try to get to this through this one. We were just talking now about the faithful witness. He never lies. You can depend on his word. And number two, he's the first begotten of the dead. And now he is the prince of the kings of the earth. Verse number five. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Faithful witness, first begotten of the dead. Now the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, there's some reference I want to give to you about Jesus Christ, what he is called. In Matthew 2, 1, 2, and 3, let's look at that one. This is, this is good for us to see this. And there are some side issues to bring out about what the verse is really saying. 
We're going to look at the verses that say that he is the king with the capital K, uppercase K. I come to Matthew chapter 2. This is about the birth of Jesus Christ and how, you know, Herod tried to find out where he was to worship him. He supposedly said he is a liar. He's a liar. Want to kill him. Matthew 2, 1, 2 and 3. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east into Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now what do you see there in your King James Bible? Uppercase K or lowercase K? Uh, you have a you have an uppercase. King. That's important. King. We've come to find the king of the Jews. We've come to worship. Verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, Herod the king. Herod the... Herod the king. Now, is there a difference between uppercase king and lowercase king? Big difference, isn't it? You know, when translators translate the Bible... They can choose. They can choose. And so the King James Translator chose to write or to call him the capital K, uppercase K. NIV, New International Version, has done this. Small K-I-N-G to that. Now, isn't that pretty rotten? They, they chose to do that. The translators, they chose to do that. So if someone's going to choose on this one verse to make Jesus Christ a small king and make a human king, the big king, uppercase king, that tells me something about the mentality of the translators. There is a bias. There's a bias. That's just a side note. I told you that. The real issue here, you see it's called the king of the Jews. Now, I want you to just listen to this one now. In um, John chapter 1, verse number 49, he's called the king of Israel. So, king of the Jews, and now he's called the king of Israel. In Psalm 24, verse number 7, when Jesus returns to heaven in victory after his death and resurrection, he's called the king of glory. Okay, so capital king, cap, uppercase K, uh, king of the Jews, king of Israel, king of glory. Here's another one, Revelation 15, 3. He's the king of saints. King, capital K, uppercase K, king of the saints. When we all get to heaven, our king is going to be Jesus Christ. Yeah. Revelation 19, 16, King of Kings. So you have the uppercase king uh, referring to Jesus Christ in these different designations, in these different settings. Now, 1 Timothy 1, 17 tells us he's called the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible. Another name for Jesus Christ is capital K, uppercase K, King Eternal, Immortal. That separates him from any King Charlemagne, King Charles, King James, King Obama, King anybody. That separates man from the king of all kings. Now, why is he called a prince though? He's called a prince. A prince is not a king. Watch carefully. Yet. A prince is not a king yet. A prince is a king in waiting. When the king dies, however he dies, natural death or assassination, 
the one who will take his place and become king and be anointed king will be the prince. A prince is a king in waiting. He's not the king yet, but he's a king in prospect. He's the king in line. He will be the king. It's just a matter of time. That part is very important. It's just a matter of time. Now, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the king, the uppercase king? We do that as Christians. We believe that. Now, let me ask this question. It's a trick question. I'll let you know ahead of time. It's a trick question. Is Jesus Christ the king of the world right now? Now, think, think, think. Is Jesus Christ the king of the world now? Think, 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 think. Don't answer yet. He's called a prince. He's called a prince. He's not called the king in this reference. So is he the king of this world now? Who thinks, no, I, I shouldn't do this. Oh, I'm going to do it anyway. Who thinks he's the king of the world right now? Okay. Who thinks that he's not the king of the world right now? Oh, you folks must have been listening before sometime. He's, the, he's called the prince right now. This is kind of strange to think of, but he is a, he's a prince now in waiting. Now, if I said and if you say that he is the king of everything now and he rules this world, a king has a kingdom, right? What is Jesus' kingdom now? Is it a physical kingdom? Paul said the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but joy in the Holy Ghost. It's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus Christ has is not here yet. He's not reigning now as the king from Jerusalem. I want you to know that the prince that will become king, he becomes king at a certain time. You want to see that certain time when he becomes king? He's not king now. Let me let me back up. Remind me to say it, okay? But I want you, I want you to get leading up to the dramatic. Oh, if he is king now, if he's lord over all now, if his kingdom is now, ask yourself this question: How is it that there's so much evil going on if he's the king now? Ask yourself the question: How could 9/11 have taken place if he's the king now? Ask yourself this: How could and whatever you want to say, how could this have happened if he's in control now? Well, the fact is, this sounds almost like false teaching, but the truth is, there's someone else who's the God of this world. There are other kings that think they are that king, and they rule the world. Well, how does this harmonize? Well, I know one thing. When someone asks you as a Christian, well, if God is in control, how come my best friend died of cancer? How come, and all these sad, real life experiences take place, and you're, you're there, and you say, well, I don't know, but God's in control. And then they come back with this, oh, is that right? If God is in control, he's a pretty bad king, isn't he? If he's the governor of all, he's a pretty bad governor. I mean, after all, when you see kids who are really... Um, disobedient and rebellious and you know they're they're doing all kind of things and uh, the parents are right there just saying oh don't do that oh, don't do that. and they, they do, you know they're doing graffiti over the and they're doing all kind of wild things and the parents are there saying oh isn't he cute look at how he can color that person's name that neighborhood wall with a spray paint a can oh look at that look at how good he is oh how artistic he is. oh 
would you say they're under these kids are under control? Would you say that the parents have authority over these kids? Would you say that they're ruling their kids properly? I would say no. I would say no, because they're not. Now, if you tell the kids stop and they stop, that's rule. That's authority. That's control. Come here. And they come over here. That's authority. That's rule. That's control. There's order because their parents are over their subjects. <laughs> and if the king is the king now, he's a pretty bad king. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. So, today, in this dispensation, he is not the king of all kings. He's not the king of all kings. He's a prince waiting to become the king of all kings. Now, uh, I want you to see that Jesus isn't in control. I mean, he is, but he isn't. He is, Jesus is in control in this sense. Here's, there's two verses I want to give you. Genesis chapter 50 and Romans 8.28. These two references gives us the sense of how he is in control, but he's not in control. Meaning that he's not ruling a kingdom now. But he is in control in that he can take something bad and make something good out of it. Genesis 50 verse number 20. Uh, we need to look at these verses, these two verses. Genesis 50 verse number 20. These two verses explain to us how God, Christ, can be the king, yet he's not in control. Yet he's able to turn things around so that things will turn out good for the believer. Genesis chapter 50. This is after Joseph had gone through his great trial of being rejected by his brothers and how now after years of being in Egypt, he's now second in command. His brothers have come like the rest of the world have come for food. And now Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers for the second or third time. And now in chapter 50, chapter 50 of Genesis verse number 20, this is how uh, Joseph has seen the whole story of what happened. He looked back and he realizes God did something through his brothers to save the whole world and his father and his family. Genesis 50, 20, he says to his brothers, look at verse 19. And Joseph said unto them, fear not, for I am in the place of God. I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna kill you. What you did to me is so wrong, but I'm not gonna kill you. Look at verse 20. But as for me, or as for you, ye thought evil against me. Yes, they did. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You see what God can do because he is in control? He can take something really messed up and make something good out of it. The intent was evil, but God saw something else down the road to make something better, much better. Now, when it comes to Romans 8, 28, I... And we know that all things work together for good. Why? How? Because he is in control. Even though he's not in control of this world, he's in control. He can turn out something that's bad into something good. Have you ever gone to the doctor for A, something small, and then B turns out they found something that they weren't even looking for? Let's take care of this. It's taken care of, everything is good. So, and sometimes you go in for something that is 
what I'm trying to explain is that something that seems so bad for the moment, because it's in control, it all works for your good and for his glory. It was meant to be evil, but then it turns out to be good. You can apply that to a lot of things in life, for the Christian especially. And so in that sense, he's in control. But now I want you to come to uh, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And then we're going to wrap this up in about two minutes. Or three. Matthew 28. Jesus is the king in waiting. He's the prince. The prince. Matthew 28, verse number 16. Then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Okay? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I have all power on earth. If he has all power on earth, why does he not stop evil in this world? If all power is under his control now. Could it be... Though that statement is true, the timing is not right for him to have all power on earth. Could it be that there's a time for which he will have all power in the earth, have all authority and rule in the earth? Could it be another time? Yes, it could be. Now, in the sense, though, of him having all power in heaven and earth, he does keep everything running as far as the earth not clotting with planet, other planets, and so on. The sun's still out there, 93 million miles away. The solar system's operating in coordination and in synchronization so nothing is chaotic he has control in that sense okay in that sense but as far as the affairs of mankind people do evil things it seems like unrestrained so we have to keep things in that context and so he's not yet able to have all authority I, I don't want to say it like that sound wrong like someone is hindering him this is not the time for him to have all authority on earth there will come a time though Revelation chapter 11, come over here one time. Revelation chapter 11. There's coming a time when he will end all the world's foolishness and evil. Revelation 11. Verse number 15. And the seventh angel, not the first angel, but the seventh angel sounded. This is the end of a series of judgments. The seventh angel sounded, and there was great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Has that happened yet? The kingdoms of this physical world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. That has not happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. Africa, the continent of Africa is still the same. Corrupt dictators you have all kind of things going on in this world's kingdoms governments that's evil but it says in verse 15 the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever and the four and twenty elders which sat before the god on their seats fell before upon their faces and worshiped god saying we give thee thanks o lord god verse 17 almighty which art and was and art to come because thou hast taken Thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. 
Okay, there's going to come a time. Revelation 19. Here it comes. Revelation 19. Here it comes. Or we should say, here he comes. Here he comes. Revelation 19. Remember, he's called the prince. But look at Revelation 19. And verse number 11. 1911. Now we come to the climax of the... How can he be a king and he be a prince? He's a prince. He's a king in waiting. After some things take place, then the king shows up. Verse number 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This is the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ to the earth. Verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew, <coughs> but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse number 14, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall, rule with them, he, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. Oh, look at this. King of kings and Lord of lords. All uppercase. Now, here he comes. The prince is now the king of all kings. Because the time has come for him to rule over the world. From Jerusalem. And so for 2,000 years, since he went to heaven, all this has been going on until, until the Lord comes back. When he comes down, rapture happens before that, tribulation, the Lord comes back. Then he takes over the world. Then you have a righteous world government. The Antichrist will have a world government. It will not be righteous. But when Jesus Christ returns, he puts everything down. And they're wiped out. He's the king of all kings. And so. That's when he will rule. That's why it's called the prince. He's a king in waiting. So. Remember that. As we begin to get into more of the book of Revelation. Remember that. This world. Is just functioning. By its own dictates. It's all evil ways, unrestrained, but one day everything is going to end when the Lord comes back. Things are really going to fall apart before He comes back in the tribulation. And it is He who's judging the world, judging Israel specifically. When He returns, Revelation 19, it will be done Armageddon, and then after that, a cleaning up of the world's garbage, all the mess, the bloodshed, and then the earth is restored to its paradise-like conditions, which would be pretty cool to think about. I'll just say this, and I'll stop for now, because we haven't got to the verses, but when that happens, the earth will be perfect in its climate. You have perfect climate control. What's perfect climate control? I don't know. People like to be in an air-conditioned car when it's hot like it is nowadays, 68 degrees, 70 degrees, just really comfortable and um, perfect climate.
perfect environment. The grass, the trees have all been burned up, destroyed, and water has been turned to blood. You have all this devastation. But all of a sudden, can you snap your fingers? I can't do that. But all of a sudden, one, two, three, all of a sudden, boom. It's like the Garden of Eden again. And have you ever seen animals attack other animals because it's in their nature? I've, I've seen leopards attack crocodiles. You say, how can that be? They go into the water and they try to pull them out. And they do sometimes. Sometimes the alligator gets them. Sometimes leopards win. That's not going to happen in the, uh, in the millennial kingdom. You're going to have a child. You're going to have Caleb walking with a lion. You're going to have a lamb lie down with a carnivorous grizzly bear. Grizzly bear is going to do this to the little lamb. And he's not thinking, well, you taste good. He's not be thinking that way. All of this stuff will be changed. The very nature of animals will be changed. It's just going to be... Now, what I don't know is what the surf's going to be like. <laughs> because it seems like the surf is a product of the moon. and I, I, Maybe, but uh, all the, the crying of creation in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, the travail of, of nature will all be over. Everything's perfect. Every picture you take would be perfect because the climate's all perfect. But that's when he is reigning and that's what the prince is about. Faith witness and the prince. King waiting. Okay, pretty interesting stuff in book Revelation. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this book. Help us to digest some of it. And we thank you that we are on the side that wins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.